you know, Murphy, I'm surprised as we think through all the public debates that are happening right now, that so much of it is based on the fact that we're arguing about what are facts. Mm. And it doesn't seem like we have a common set of facts anymore to base all these debates on. No, you're absolutely right. It's the biggest problem we have. I'd like to share and recommend a new documentary podcast series called Fate of Fact, written and narrated by Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and best-selling author John Meacham. America has always been a country of competing visions, a nation shaped by the push and pull of vigorous debate. But now that fragile consensus to find truth feels fundamentally broken. Gibbsy, I couldn't agree more. You and I disagree about a lot in politics, but I think you're a patriot. I think you're my opponent, not my enemy, because we can have a fair debate about different issues where at least we agree on the facts by which we measure the problem and measure success. So our friend John Meacham, a very thoughtful guy, many of you might have read some of his excellent books, is addressing this in this new podcast series. So join John Meacham in Fate of Fact as he explains how and why fear and power have conquered truth and why respect for data and fact has become a casualty of war in the United States. Fate of Fact, a new audio documentary from Shining City Audio, a John Meacham and C13 original studio, is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, and wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out. I know we're going to. Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. says what he thinks, and I don't hide the fact that I wasn't a fan of our last president's character issues, and I'm also no fan. All right, guys, Robert Gibbs, good to see you, brother. That was a wild weekend in Utah with Mitt Romney, and uh, who better to sort out Republican politics for us than the man himself, our buddy Carl Rove. Good to see you, Carl. Good to be seen occasionally. <laughs> Obviously, I have no standards about the company in which I'm seen because I know that by being seen with the two of you and saying nice things about both of you, I'm destroying your reputations. And and, sim- and simply being with you, I'm, my reputation's destroyed. So. As soon as I said our buddy Carl Rove, I figured, <laughs> yeah, holy shit, we just, we, yeah, exactly, <laughs> right. We'll, well, we're in fairness, we're all going to get emails after this. So. Here come the tweets, yeah, exactly, and tweets and all of that stuff. So, but anyway, good to see you there, brother. One of the things that uh, we want to sort through here is exactly what is going on in the party because, you know, Romney wasn't being booed because of votes he cast. He was booed before and after he made that comment because of his posture on Trump. You know, Liz Cheney is probably one of the most conservative members of the House and one of the most partisan, frankly. Uh, and she's they're threatening to bounce her as leader, not because of any issue, but because of Trump. So what do you do with all that? Well, you persevere. Um, first of all, let's take let's separate them because they're each different circumstances. Having spent part of my childhood and uh, early adulthood in Utah. Yeah. Yeah. So the Republican Party in Utah is not reflective of the Republican primary vote. You know, and so even at that convention, which, you know, would consist of you would suspect the most Trumpian of the elements of the party in Utah, there was a move to censure Romney and it failed. 
by a few votes. It was close. It was well, f- well, like 80, a, 80 some odd votes out of yeah. out of out of uh, you know about fourteen hundred or fifteen hundred. Right. So, but you know, nonetheless, they also booed the the, the Republican governor who had won election, won the primary last year overwhelmingly and won a, you know, literally the Democrats didn't really even have a serious candidate in the general election. So, but it is emblematic of the fact that there is an element in our party to, to whom fidelity to Trump uh, trumps all. And uh, uh, Romney, having spoken out against the president, having voted uh, to impeach the president, is going to receive their ire. Uh, I'm not certain that at the end of the day it matters much to him, nor does I think it matter a lot to the people of Utah. His polling numbers have taken a hit there. Well, I mean, sure, Trump sure has sw- he has some, some smack, big smack in the party. I mean, look, he's the former Republican president of the United States, and uh, you know there are a lot of people when you when you have you know six out of ten, seven out of every ten Republicans thinking that something was hinky about the election and. You know, my sense is a number of those people are just sort of going along, you know, because that's what sort of the sense is. But there are probably, you know, three out of five or three out of 10, four out of 10, five out of 10 who do believe the election was stolen. So somebody who, like Romney, has voted to impeach the president uh, has a double whammy against him. He voted to impeach the president and he doesn't think the election was stolen. Um, And that 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 is putting him at odds with a great amount of the Republican base. And God bless you. You saw she tweeted out yesterday after Trump emerged to say once again that it, it was a big, the election was a big lie, trying to, I guess, steal the branding there. She said the 2020 presidential election was not stolen. Anyone who claims it was is spreading the big lie, turning their back on the rule of law and poisoning our democratic system. So she's like flying right into the storm there. Yeah. And, uh, and she knows what's going to happen when that happens. I mean, look, I wrote a column months ago saying that there, there was not that these all of these uh, efforts after the election were not going to overturn the election because in the modern history of our country, there have been a handful of statewide contests that have been overturned, and all of them involved the difference between the candidates of hundreds of votes, not tens of thousands of votes. And I got a little pushback on that. And then after uh, pushback, Trump, Trump called you a big asshole. No, no, no. That that came later. Uh, that's 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 when I you know he he gave the speech at CPAC and basically said the election was stolen and we never had a chance to present our evidence. And in my column, they, he said that on Sunday and on Thursday I wrote in my column that that was not accurate. That he had his campaign lawyers had a chance to present it, and I quoted from judges in six states. And basically every time he came, his lawyers popped up with with an argument. They lacked evidence, and they got poured out by the judges. For and, and, and the, perhaps the toughest was a Trump-appointed judge in Pennsylvania who said, "Not only did you not have evidence in support of your allegations, you didn't even have specific allegations," and that generated a page and a half statement ventilating at me by the former president from his <laughs> from his lair, his secret, his fortress of solitude, Mar-a-Lago, and. And one of his people told me in advance, I did the courtesy of saying, I'm giving, I'm giving you a heads up. I'm going to say this about his speech, five things about his speech. And I'm going to end with this point. And he said, well, that last one's going to drive him absolutely up the wall because the only thing that he clings to is, is that he won the election. It was somehow stolen from him. But they had a chance to prove it. In every case, they, they didn't have the evidence. Tens right. of thousands of people, they said, voted dead people, voted in, in Nevada. And they came up with the names of three. To, uh, two of which were actually dead, and one of which was an accidental, uh, you know, woman, 
uh, the, the elderly guy lived with his daughter. He dies. She gets his absentee ballot, mistakes it for hers, <laughs> fills it out, sends it in. Then she gets her ballot the next day or two and realizes she's accidentally sent in her father's, holds on to her ballot, doesn't vote it, but holds on to it. So, so if anybody shows up on her doorstep after the fact, she can explain the mistake. And yeah. of course, they do show up on her doorstep, but they found three. So yeah. anyway. No, no, I, you, you don't have to persuade me. You, as you point out, <laughs> yeah. 70% of Republicans have a different yeah. view. Well, but you know what? What I, I run into all the time, people say to me, you know, geez, was it stolen? And I say, no, Dominion, Dominion, you know, here's all this nutty stuff about Dominion. What do you, why, why do you think? Of- they may own your network by the time we're, uh, we're, uh, we're done here. So yeah, no, no, they won't. No, they won't. <laughs> but look, it is a problem, but let's look, look, let's be honest, boys, just I'm not, and I'm not saying equivalency, but I remember all of the people in your party who said George W. Bush wasn't legitimate. I mean, Paul Begala to this day will not admit that Bush is, is legitimate. And we had a guy trying to overturn the certified elections of the result in Florida by trying to run a unauthorized illegal recount in three counties, heavily Democratic, because as as uh, his lawyer, David Boyce, told in, a, in, a bi- in his autobiography, because if they conducted a statewide recount, Bush's lead in Florida would grow. So, you know, I, I grant you, nothing matches what we got going on here with this. But for the last 20 years, we've had, uh, even after 2004, we we won Ohio by 120,000 votes. And Senator Barbara Boxer is uh, lending her the the, uh, dignity of her office to an effort led by a bunch of lunatics in the House to overturn the election of 2004. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that's equivalent to... But nobody went along and... And nobody really. There was a symbolic thing. This was. Well, go tell this that. Is, go tell that to Barbara that, Boxer. Listen, yeah. I don't want to. Nobody wants to debate Carl Rove. Okay, college debater of the year. No, no, and all high that school stuff. I didn't do it in college. That was Ted Cruz. Theodore <laughs> Cruz was the college debate. <laughs> but but getting back to Cheney, I mean Robert, what do you think she's? I mean, I admire her courage here. What do you think is up? Well, I mean, look, I think in some ways, and I, I thought the response yesterday showed that she's going to wear this both triumphantly and I think as a strategy in a way that, that you might not think. I mean, she's not shying away from this. She, she didn't have to respond to that tweet. I think part of it is, and look, she's clearly getting ready. I mean, she raised a million and a half dollars at the beginning of the year. Um, about five times the amount of money she raised two years ago going into the election. So I think she understands what's coming. And I think, you know, you've got to give her a lot of credit for standing up on principle. And well, I wait, think well, be- I'm just interested in what she's up to. Carl, you think that it's possible that, I mean, first of all, you think they're going to throw her out as the, as the uh, third ranking, as the caucus chair there, the third ranking Republican? If it's a secret vote, no. Mm hmm. Uh, I mean, you saw it. You saw it earlier in the year when they had the meeting, and people were talking about getting up and hyperventilating at her. And one of the members stood up and said something like, "You know, you it's like you know, I'm on the football field and I look up and I see my girlfriend in the yeah, stands." Said my, and, and, you know, all the women swift. members yelled yeah. at him, "She's not your girlfriend," <laughs> and, uh, and 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 they 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 knew that they didn't have the votes, and she provoked it. She said, "All right, we're we're not going to leave here. We're going to go ahead and vote." And, and she won overwhelmingly. And my sense is that's the case even today. I mean, because, look, there are a lot of members of the, of the House, I think, who recognize that they're in a bad place. They don't want to alienate the, the, you know, the, the base of the party back home. But on the other hand, you know, lots of 
I talk to members and they say, you know, I just, I wish he'd, I wish he'd stop talking about this. You know, it's, it's putting us in a bad place. Cause I, what I worry about long-term is this, the Georgia effect. You take a look and rank the counties, the 159 counties in Florida, in, in Georgia, by the percentage of the Trump vote in November. And, and those counties starting from the biggest Trump county working your way down, the bigger the Trump vote, the bigger the drop off between November and January. Yeah. So what he could conceivably do by this is convince a lot of people drop out of politics because no matter what you do, they're going to steal your vote and you aren't going to matter. And rather than making people angry, it's going to make people depressed and drive down Republican turnout. So yeah. to that end, Carl, do you think over the course of the next you know, 18 months or so between now and and the midterm election, do, do you think the party can can walk that line? And do you think the want to be speaker can navigate both McCarthy, the politics of the caucus and the base back home to get people excited enough in an election where traditionally they'd be the favorite? Well, I'd say this, and I'm writing my column uh, for uh, Thursday. So don't tell it comes out at eight 30 on uh, Wednesday night. By Wednesday the way, for night, those yeah, 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 yeah. You know, Axelrod thought it came out at four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it got up to it, it, so told me he got up to read it, making it, making it sound like there was an enormous <laughs> personal sacrifice, but I, I had to <laughs> He's an old print guy, Carl. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So a couple of interesting things. First of all, the Republican turnout, I mean, there are 62% of the turnout in the jungle primary voted for Republican candidates. You just had a primary in Texas, open seat in the suburbs of Dallas, Fort Worth. Yeah, uh, Tarrant County. So it's Fort Worth. And then it has Ellis County, which is sort of an exurb of Dallas. And then Navarro County, which is a rural county to the east. Uh, and and the and last fall, Trump won the district by three. The Republican member won re-election by nine. It's in Texas. We have a jungle primary and special election, so everybody mm-hmm. runs on on the same ballot. And Democrats the two top voters, yeah. yeah, Democrats and Republicans. And sixty-two percent of the people voted for Republican candidate, and thirty-six percent of the people voted for a Democratic candidate, and just less than one percent voted for a Libertarian or an Independent. That's a huge difference from the way it was in the fall. Excuse me, in the in the primaries of twenty twenty where it was the Republicans had like 50 some odd percent, the Democrats had 40 some odd percent of the total vote. And what that says to me is, is that the Biden agenda, even without a very comprehensive messaging effort by the Republicans, is starting to energize the Republican base without similarly motivating the Democrats. Or maybe just the Democrats were less uh, intensely interested in the race, you know. Well, but that, but that's my point because it, you know, the hubbub was the Democrats have got a chance to to shift a, to shift mm-hmm. a seat to grab a seat. The, the national Democrats said, "Oh yeah, this is we got a real shot because Trump only won it by three. We're going to be we got a real opportunity." They sort of coalesced behind one candidate, an Hispanic Democrat named Sanchez. But at the end of the day, the Democrats couldn't even mount enough votes to. They came in third. Uh, among the among the 23 candidates. And so the two people going into the runoff are Republicans and we'll have another Republican in the seat. The other thing that I pick up out of this is the power of Trump's endorsement. Yeah. He endorses he endorses Susan Wright. Yeah. And better than two out of every three Republicans don't vote for her. She did win, though. She did. She came in first. But I, I would attribute if people who have been looking at the polling in it tell me that she was essentially where she was throughout the entire campaign. Look, she was she's a her husband is the was the member of Congress. So she's the widow. 
She worked, she was the chief staffer for two state representatives, popular state representative. She was endorsed by the Republican mayor of Fort Worth, Betsy Price. Three of the, uh, or excuse me, four of the, the four Republicans who represent either the eastern part of her district or represent Tarrant County. And she was endorsed by a huge number of local Republican activists long before the president did. So you think he jumped on a moving train there? He jumped on a moving train. And look, it helps. I mean, I'm running, I'm, you know, the, the guy who, who said, I'm going to campaign as the, I'm totally against Trump. Yeah, I got 3%. Yeah, he got 3% of the total, which means he got about 6% of the Republican vote, between 5 and 6% of the Republican vote. But the fact of the matter is, is that two-thirds of the people who voted Republican said, well, I'm going to ignore the fact that President Trump has endorsed Susan Right. I'm going to go for somebody else. So what do you think this means? What do you think that means for 2022 and all these intramural fights between Trump candidates and non-Trump candidates? You know, he's taking on the governor of Georgia, the secretary of state down there, all the members of Congress who voted uh, to impeach him and so on. I mean, do you think there's anything uh, predictive about what you just saw? Well, I think it says that over time, uh, his ability to dictate an outcome diminishes. It doesn't mean that his endorsement doesn't help. But if you can make the race about something else, that is to say, I'm making it about, you know, an agenda. I'm making it about my persona. Uh, and I'm not making it about him. Then uh, then you don't need to be, you know, you don't need to be the blessed candidate in order to win or to run a strong race. It also shows, too, I mean, we saw this, David, in the White House, and, and certainly Trump saw this in 2018, is that you know, uh, those off-year elections have less pull from somebody who's not on the ballot, right? I mean, we saw obviously very different results in 2008 and 2012 than we did in 2010 and and 2014. And so I I do think it will be interesting to see, to your point, Carl, he certainly is there and he's certainly a big part of the party. The question is, does every day, does he get stronger or does he get weaker? And, and, And I think that will be an interesting an interesting subplot to see over the course of the next 18 months. He's been off social media. That may change uh, some this week um, with the decision by the Facebook Oversight Board. But I, I do think his his impact, I have certainly thought, was less. It, it has been less than I thought it was going to be. Back when he would tweet about me, if he tweeted about me, I'd get, you know, 20 or 30 emails. When he issued the, the page and a half childish rant, I got two. Okay, then let's take a break right here, and we'll be right back. Hey, Axe, you know what I find hard these days? I find it hard to take time to sit down and learn more. It feels like I'm so busy. I'm doom scrolling on social media, which is addictive (laughs) and time consuming. You might think you don't have time to sit down and develop yourself. Right. But Axe, there's an app that I highly recommend, and it's called Blinkist. Blinkist is for anyone who cares about learning but doesn't have a lot of time, and that's a lot of people. Blinkist takes the key ideas and insights from over 4,000 nonfiction bestsellers in more than 27 categories and gathers them together in a 15-minute text and audio explainers that help you understand more about the core ideas. Use the Blinks to get into the topic quickly, find new topics to grow from, or figure out which books you want to spend more time reading or listening to more deeply. What's more, and this is really cool, they've teamed up with popular podcast creators to Blink those for you, too, so you can get the heart of a podcast episode fast. With high-quality audio, you can jump right in on the go during your commute, at the gym, around the house, or even download to listen offline. 
X 15 million people are already using Blinkist to broaden their knowledge in 27 nonfiction categories, including self-improvement, personal growth, management, leadership, and mindfulness and happiness. The great thing about Blinkist is that you can do it going anywhere, doing anything. And in 15 minutes, you really get the crux of things. Look, some of the more popular ones, uh, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. Maybe it's now even briefer. Or how about Accidental Presidents by Jared Cohen? Or my favorite, Procrastinate on Purpose. Or Everything is Fucked, a book about hope, which is my favorite title of all time. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com hacks to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off of a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com hacks to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash hacks. You know, it's interesting. You said, well, if they had a vote, uh, uh, if it's a if it's a secret ballot on Cheney, yeah. she'll pre- prevail, in, implying that if, it, if it's not a secret ballot, she won't, which means that there are a whole lot of politicians who are still worried about keeping their skirts clean with Trump. Yeah. Well, look, because they go back home and they that, you know, if you're if you're for Trump, you are for Trump and uh, and you're you're most concerned about him, And, and, and you, you talk to your. You talk to your member about it, and and you know it's like Mitt Romney gets booed. You you know and that's that's a message to everybody. And uh, I, I but I'm, I'm with Robert. I think over time he's got to make this about something bigger than himself, and he and he finds it difficult to do that. This is all about you know I lost and I it was stolen from me. And the one thing, the amazing thing to me is is that look, this is a country of second chances. And if he said you know what I gave it my all and I came up short, and that yeah, there's some things that I. would Things stink about the election, but by God, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna get back in the game. I'm gonna keep open my options. I think he'd be stronger than he is. I think this thing of I lost, I lost, I lost. You know, look, it's the it's the Lauren S. Bubba McDonald rule. We had three elections on January 5th in Georgia: two U.S. Senate races and a public service commission race. And Lauren S. Bubba McDonald got reelected to the public service commissioner running 22,000 votes ahead of David Perdue with 37,000 votes ahead of Kelly Leffler. And I think that that, you know, if, if Trump is in the center of things, our party is divided. And if he's not in the center of things, we're less divided. Yeah. No, you're right. If he had, if he had done that and if he had done a lot of other things, things could have worked out differently. But of course, if pigs could fly, they would end up on less uh, breakfast are you, plates. Are you too. are you suggesting the former president is a pig? I'm just. I'm, <laughs> I, I want to be clear that I think that's really unfortunate. If that's what you were doing, he's going to make it a bacon reference, which is a bigger part of him. Okay, but um, so talk about this thing that you're doing in Texas on Friday. You're hosting a big jamboree for uh, donors, and uh, a bunch of folks are coming down who uh, have been mentioned in connection to the presidential race. Yeah. I presume Trump was not invited? Well, he's the former president and he's not really traveling beyond Mar-a-Lago. Uh, but but and this is not about, this is about, first and foremost, about thanking a group of people who very generously backed two efforts in Texas that we didn't talk a lot about during the campaign. But 2018 was a wake up for Texas Republicans. Robert Francis O'Rourke ran closer to Theodore Cruz than we liked. <laughs> and we lost 12 seats in the Texas House. 
And the Democrats made it clear that they were going to come for Texas. Biden spent money here, which was unusual. The Democrats ended up spending a grand total of $65 million to try and take out uh, Senator Cornyn, the senior senator from the state. President Obama and uh, former Attorney General Eric Holder marshaled, I think, something in the vicinity of 30 some odd million dollars to focus on basically 15 state house races. Think about that. That's a huge amount of money. So we, 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 in, in, in expectation that we were going to be outgunned on, this, on several fronts, organized a voter registration effort, the first one in years. We didn't talk about it. Uh, after it was all over, the Democrats in their autopsy report said, we don't know how, we don't know why, but the Republicans appear to have outregistered us, including by a, a net of 88,000 people in the month, uh, in the last couple of months of the campaign. And we're really not certain how that all happened. Well, it happened because we mounted a large voter registration effort. So the, the donors to that are being invited. We had a big get out the vote effort. Between the two of them, they generated about an additional 500,000 votes. And in fact, we have one member of Congress who won by 4,500 votes and 7,500 new Republican voters voted in her district. Uh, and so we have two members of the House, State House of Representatives, whose margins were less than the number of new Republican votes. We have a dozen members of the House who had between a quarter to 80 some odd percent of their margin is from newly registered voters and whose margin winning margin is less than the number of low propensity voters. And so anyway, we got a bunch of donors who made that possible. So <laughs> I got that. And I, and I, and I'm glad to have given you time to brag on what you accomplished. Yeah. Well, but. no, two young guys who did that, but, but, but we decided, we decided we wanted to reward them and we started inviting people and everybody wanted to come because they're going to walk into a room full of check writers and bundlers and, go-getters, and and, uh, and it's going to be great because we're going to have- Well, run down the roster of the people who are coming. A- alphabetical order, Chris Christie, Tom Cotton, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Marco Rubio, Rick Scott, and Tim Scott. Nikki Haley wanted to come, but her daughter graduates from Clemson Nursing School that day. And each one of them, each one of the guests is going to be interviewed by a member of the Texas congressional delegation. Hey, Axe, I'm just- I'm just wondering, all those names that Carl wrote, what, what do you think those names have in common? They're really appreciative of the efforts uh, to win that, in that Texas could be, in 2020. That's a possible answer. I'm sure that's, that's, certainly I'm a possible sure that answer. that's it. They just wanted to join in the thanks to, to all those people. You got quite a lineup. The fact that three of them are on the ballot next year and want to make sure that they have Texas friends who raise the money might have something to do with that it. That could be part the, of it. And then, then the fact that about another three or four of them have political action committees or political groups are setting up that they'd like to make a good impression in front of a bunch of Texas donors might have something to do with it as well. I think you're getting warmer, Carl, but I'm not sure you've <laughs> landed on the moment that, uh, yes, I think, and, 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 and I think more than a few are entertaining the possibility of running for president. It's open to the press, I assume? No. No, it's no. not, huh? Closed press. There you go. All right. Closed press, invitation only. Off the record. Let's just note the fact that we will know in about 15 minutes after each of these <laughs> events who said what, who got cheers, who got booed, how many times Trump was mentioned, and so on. I can't wait. You've got to get a life, incidentally. You've got to, Axelrod, you've got to endeavor to, <laughs> I, I don't know, take, take, a, take a crochet. I could take that from anybody but you. Read books. <laughs> I mean, come on. I, yeah. could take, I could take that from anybody but you, Carl. I uh I know how you spend your time. Knowing what we talked about in terms of, of, of how you see the, the shape of the party going into 2022. And, and, and then, you know, I should remind listeners, you're, you're the last 
Republican presidential strategist that captured a majority of the national vote in the presidential election. That was in 2004. And so what are you, from that perspective, looking for and listening for in this next group of people? And I'm not suggesting that every one of them is running for president. Obviously, a lot of them have talked about it. But how, how you know, and, and I know we don't elect our presidents through a national vote, but you're obviously looking to give some platform to folks that are going to be the potential next chapter. What what are you looking to hear from somebody that you think can garner a majority of Americans vote in 2024? Well, I think both political parties are broken. I'm trying to help fix mine. Um, I think that the, the candidates in 2022 and eventually in 2024 have to show an ability to do three things simultaneously. First, there, our party is changing. There, it didn't happen because of Trump. Trump is the beneficiary. I have a book called the on my shelf at home called the the uh, New Politics of Old Values, written in 1988 by a political scientist who says the Democratic Party is losing the blue collar middle class base that it had. It is moving into the to the Republican Party, and it better do something about it. And, and this you know, we call them Reagan Democrats, and so, but we are a more blue collar party today. So, and, they, and Donald Trump has their enthusiastic backing. And the question is how do future candidates keep that part of our coalition active and energized while simultaneously rebuilding our strength in the suburbs? We were the suburban party. And, 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 if, we, and if we allow college educated suburbanites, particularly college educated women, to to um, to fall away, there's 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 a limit as to how much we can pick up in the exurbs and rural America. We gotta we gotta simultaneously do something to get those people back, and and we can't. And thirdly, we're an increasingly diverse country, and I think we need to recognize that in the nature of the candidates that we put forward. I don't think it's an accident. First time since California became a state in 1850, the Republicans flipped four Democratic seats in the November election in, in California. Two of them with Asian American women, and two of them with Latino men. I don't think that's an accident. I think that that, that you know the more diverse our party is, the more you know we we got a great number of women candidates last time around. We got to do more of that. And so I'm looking for who has got the messaging, got an optimistic and forward looking view that allows us to fashion this winning coalition and and actually win a majority of the presidential vote. You're right. Last time we got it was in 2004. Uh, Mitt Romney got a bigger percentage of the vote in losing than Donald Trump got in winning. And then Donald Trump lost it with a smaller percentage of the vote than, Don, than, than uh, in 2020 than, than uh, Mitt Romney got. So we got we to gotta recognize these realities and deal with them. And I, I don't know what the answer is. And I don't know who's going to be, who are going to be the best by 2024, who's going to be the best uh, position to, to do that. But I do know it helps our party to have a lot of people working on the problem now with our with our goal being 2022. Every, virtually every one of these people is coming on on, uh, on Friday, is coming Thursday night in order to do a fundraiser somewhere in the state for our, for our congressional members who got less than 56% of the vote. And that's, that, that's helpful as well. So the more people stirring around, the better off we are, I think. No, you. Okay, then let's take a break right here. And we'll be right back. Growing up, cereal was 
actually one of the best parts of being a kid, and I ate a ton of it, but until I started weighing a ton. <laughs> and so I had to give it up because I realized it was full of sugar and junk that you really shouldn't eat. So I've been trying to cut down on carbs and sugar and healthy foods and realized I basically can't eat anything anymore. So I've been drinking protein shakes, powder for years, but finally found a delicious way to get my protein before and after workouts. We're all trying to eat better, but healthy breakfast doesn't have to be boring. Magic Spoon has the amazing flavors you love, but without all that bad stuff. Zero grams of sugar, 13 and 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. Only 140 calories a serving, X. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. And we've got exciting news. Magic Spoon has released a super delicious new flavor. Are you ready for this, X? Birthday cake. Birthday, Birthday cake. cake. Okay. Magic Spoon will be available in a special five-pack for a limited time only, so get it while you can. Or build your own box. Available flavors to build your very own custom bundle are cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, and cinnamon. I'm going for cocoa and peanut butter mixed together. I like frosted, but the point here is to get your five-pack so you're not carrying around a six-pack all the time. <laughs> And the good news is if you're listening from Canada, Magic Spoon now ships there as well. So go to magicspoon.com slash hacks to grab the new limited edition birthday cake or a custom bundle of cereal and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code hacks at checkout to save $5 off your order. This offer is now good anywhere in the U.S. or the aforementioned Canada, but only when you use our code at checkout. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. And who doesn't want to be 100% happy? So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com hacks and use the code hacks to save $5 off. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode and for bringing us birthday cake. You guys are losing support in the suburbs. That was the bulwark of republicanism. And, and uh, you know, those folks are not uh, isolationists. They're not nativists. They're, uh, you know, they, they're, they're probably more traditional Republicans, small, small government, uh, you know, Republicans. But on, on some of these, it's social issues that hold a lot of this blue-collar base to the Republican Party and to Trump, uh, Trump's half of the Republican Party or, or portion of the Republican Party, whatever size it is. Um, and that is an, and a lot of the things that, that hold them are an antithesis to these suburban voters. It's a, it's a challenge to try and bridge that divide. I, I, I'm not certain I agree with, with that they're anathema because you, your party's the party that keeps on giving. Take, for example, defunding the police. Last fall, we had a number of state, state representative candidates who won in part because their Democrat opponents came to Austin, Texas, and had fundraisers hosted for them by a council member who literally wants to defund the police, a guy named Caceres. He hosted fundraisers for him here in Austin. Yeah. This is a guy who literally wants to blow up. He wants to implode, physically implode the police headquarters in order to demonstrate the new spirit that we have in Austin. And if you don't think that we made hay with that back home in, you know, oh, Collin sure County, you 
Um, there, there's some of these social issues, the abortion, the centrality of the abortion issue or bathroom bills is problematic in the suburbs. But a lot of the values issues like what are you doing about securing the border and what are you doing about things like like woke culture and teaching our kids that the central point of America's experience is a commitment to slavery, not a commitment to liberty. And what do you do about defunding the police? All of these things help us in the suburbs. There are issues that are, are more problematic and, and, and how you deal with them really matters. But, but I, 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 I wouldn't just say that that's, a, that's simply an expression of the Trump wing of the Republican Party or anathema to the suburbans. Yeah. I think there's a, pretty, there's a big antithesis in those suburban areas too. You know, to nativism, certainly to racism. I agree. Totally, totally agree with you. And, and you know, drove a lot of, there are a lot of, of it, obviously we concentrate on Republican women. You know, there was a pretty significant shift among Republican men. Uh, and I think it had to do with a lot of that stuff that made them uh, uncomfortable. But let me ask you something about those blue collar guys and gals. Um, you know, I, I, I read your, your column last week about Biden and his proposals. Um, but, you know, a lot of them uh, are very, very popular and they're very popular, uh, across the board, but especially with that blue collar base. Uh, and you, you feel like you can, you feel like Republicans can win running against the Biden program. And yeah, I'm I wondering, do. I, I mean, I, I think the big question strategically big bet by Biden, but I'm not sure that these people, uh, are opposed to, you know, uh, to the child tax subsidy. I'm not sure uh, that they're opposed to uh, uh, preschool, you know, uh, uh, universal pre-kindergarten. I'm not sure. I, I, I think that's a bet that a lot of Democrats will take. Part of that blue collar base says, yeah, I want I want made in America. Right. Yeah, I want I want I want if I want roads and bridges. Right. But you start talking about a bunch of this other stuff and the price tag begins to sort of you know, make their eyes glaze over and wonder where the hell is that money going to come from? And it strikes me that a lot of this too is, is I want, you know, it strikes me that, that there's a, that there's a big component in our country that says, you know what? I want opportunity. I pulled myself up. I, you know, I never graduated from college, but I, but I'm, I'm, I, and I'm a small business woman and I own my own, you know, landscaping company, landscaping company. And I'm, 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 I never went and graduated from college, but by God, I've got three other plumbers working with me. And there are people over there in the Democratic Party who are looking down their noses at me thinking all yeah. I want is a handout yeah. and want Uncle, Uncle, you know, uh, Uncle Sam to take care of my life. So, but we'll see. That's, that's one of the interesting things about, I, I, I love the fact that the White House has decided, I'm going to write a column about it. It's going to be called the Anita Dunn Doctrine. Bipartisanship consists of finding a, a, a a poll question where, where if you look at the cross tabs, we can, we can, we can say, are you in favor of mom, apple pie and ice cream and on the 4th of July? And a majority of Republicans agree with that. So therefore they love our agenda. Well, we'll see if that really plays out in as simplistic fashion as the Anita Dunn doctrine. All I got to do is rely on a poll question to tell me that the Republicans are going to be supportive of this at the end of the process. As you know, you you guys were there. You lay something out, and there's a heck of a lot more information, good or bad, about it within a matter of months as you go through the legislative process, and people's attitudes change about things. 
good or bad, true or false. But yeah, but, yeah. But let's let's pick on that for a second because I, I think that's the most fascinating thing over the next four months of our politics is this race to define on both sides what's been proposed, right? And I think probably for the first time in a long time, Democrats are comfortable making an argument about raising taxes and increasing spending. And I presume, Carl, your party wants to make an argument about not raising taxes and and not increasing a a, a lot of that spending. My question, and I'm not being facetious, but do do you think, because I did not see this in the first- You can be facetious, go ahead. (laughs) But I did not see this in the first hundred days. The Republican opposition, to me, didn't feel organized and coalesced in a message that really- impeded Biden. Biden's biggest challenge that first 100 days was keeping 50 Democratic senators in. Do you think that the Republican Party is ready to not just engage, but engage in a disciplined way in filling that canvas in? I, I wish I could say, yes, they will, but I don't know. But 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 I will say this, even without it, I think that what what, what people are hearing about the border and what they're hearing about Biden, and when they hear the number six trillion, they begin to get a little nervous, which is why I think we saw a little bit of what we saw on Tuesday. Actually, though, I, I want to draw you back to a column I wrote a couple of weeks ago. By the way, we we fully expect a royalty from the Wall Street <laughs> Journal based on the sheer number of times that the column that the Carl should writes sponsor on the Thursday. damn podcast for crying out loud. <laughs> you, you, you don't know how little I get paid for it. Man. But I mean, it's like, well, it's not because you're not trying. That's for sure. Yeah, well, yeah, damn it, get read buy the paper on Thursday for God's sake. But 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 look, let's assume for a minute that you're right. That if the both of you are right, they everybody loves all this big stuff. Everybody loves the child tax credit. Everybody loves the creation of the climate core. And everybody loves all this stuff. And it's popular. And that the taxes, by God, we're going to sock it to the corporations and the rich people and capital gains and blah, 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 blah. So I wrote a couple of weeks ago, the system would be well served if we had some bipartisanship. So my suggestion was, why don't you have one bill that you pass bipartisan? Find an agreement on what traditionally has been constituted as, quote, infrastructure, maybe even expanded to include the Davos. You know, we got we got roads, bridges, high, uh, highways, airports, uh, waterways, ports. Those have been traditional uh, uh, traditional mm-hmm. infrastructure. The Davos boys got together and said it also includes broadband and water and wastewater and water treatment. Yeah, because they so live in they the 21st that. century, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's about, that is about 24% of the $2.2 trillion infrastructure bill. So get together with the Republicans and say, we're going to move this in two bills. We're going to move one bill that is the Davos description of of uh, of, of climate. That'll be popular. Of, of Just brand anything with Davos and it'll sail yeah, right yeah, through. Yeah, yeah. But, but <laughs> use the broader definition, the modern definition, the 21st century <laughs> definition. Okay. But, 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 but so you got that and get the Republicans to come on board, use your fees wherever possible because the They'll, they'll pay, you know, the user fees will pay a lot of that and get it done and pass that with a huge bipartisan vote. And then you Democrats can take all the rest of that, you know, sort of 76 percent of the two point two trillion dollars and all the tax increases that go with it and put it together in a bill and run it through on reconciliation. And maybe you pick up a couple of Republican votes, maybe you're not. But everybody you get the credit of we tried to do something bipartisan and we did. But by God, the really important things that we think are really, 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 really popular. 
We were willing to take the tough vote and bring it through the House and the Senate on a straight party line vote and use up one of our reconciliation opportunities for this year and get it done. And then everybody gets to go to make their argument to the American people. The Republicans say, we thought in favor of traditional infrastructure. They wanted all this goofy stuff. You get to say, we took all these beautiful things, these wonderful things, the things that are so popular and including all the taxes to, to pay for them. And we did it. And we'll see how that plays out in the election. First of all, I agree with you that there's a real impetus to uh, on both split sides. the hard infrastructure stuff yeah. uh, out. I think it would be defined more broadly than than you you would define it. But uh, there there is a there is a place there is. I'm a, a Davos man. Believe me, I know you are. Twenty four percent of the of the bill. I want I've I want your suits for anybody listening. <laughs> Davos, Davos is man. now a suburb of Houston. Just, just <laughs> yeah, exactly. Davos may be a suburb of Houston. I do think I've said for some time, I think that there is a play and partly because Joe Manchin, I think, really wants it. And, you know, if you don't have 50 votes, <laughs> there's no Democratic play here. But uh, I think there is a play uh, for a bill that's larger than the one the Republicans proposed, smaller than the one that Biden uh, proposed and maybe funded with user fees, maybe funded. One interesting thing that flew under the radar was this $80 billion for the IRS over the next 10 years to uh, to to uh, focus enforcement on tax evasion at the top. Uh, Republicans might uh, hold their nose and vote for that, but it's not a tax increase, which would uh, be more uh, anathema to them. Uh, and, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a possibility of that. Uh, but I do think, you know, the battle, to your point, Robert, the battle is between Republicans who would like to talk about the sum Democrats who want to talk about the parts, Republicans who want to talk about taxes, Democrats who want to talk about who's going to pay the taxes. And, uh, you know, who wins Who wins that battle of definition is going to win the fight. I like the idea, though, of two bills for one sort of goo-goo reason. I think the country needs some bipartisanship. And so, so if, you, if you guys really do believe that all that stuff is popular, do it yourselves. But, but, but do something good for the country by saying there are some things in which everybody agrees. It'd be a good predicate. I, something good would come of that. You know, Chris Coons, the Democratic senator from Delaware and a close friend of the Bidens, um, also had a, a you know, very similar idea to what we've just been talking about. And I, I presume, Carl, I think we would as Democratic strategists, and I presume you as a Republican strategist, would say to a client, yeah, go that route, vote for that bipartisan bill and show people that the show the American people we can still get big things done. I think the question ultimately will be I don't know that that number is 600 billion. I don't know that that number is 2.2 trillion. I I'm I'm interested to know if if that number is that number a trillion? Is it 800? Is it 1.2? I I don't know what that number is, but I I, I have a feeling it's higher than what the Republican offer is. But I, like you, I think it will be interesting to watch. I think that could, I think that could definitely be the process because I think in many ways um, it does, it sets about the stakes that I think the political parties have both been talking about. You know, the, yeah. President Biden, you know, campaigned on raising taxes for people above $400,000. So th- this is clearly a fight that that they're girding to have. And, and I think uh, I, I think it's going to be what defines, like I said, the next four months. Yeah, embrace it. Embrace it. Incidentally, one, one, one quick thing. Coons came out in favor of the two-track after I wrote my column. I'm claiming no, 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 I'm not claiming a relationship between my 
brilliant words at him. Jesus, we we are we are going to get something from the Wall Street Journal for this for this yeah. pouring for for Rove's column. But in service of that, let me say. When you wrote in your column that Biden, you know, you, you said it was a bait and switch. He ran as a moderate. He's got this radical agenda. Yeah. Um, there's nothing in that in these fiscal packages that I know of. No, certainly no big item that wasn't in the plans that he announced when he was running as a candidate. He didn't say, I'm not going to do big, expansive things. Everybody wrote about it thinking, well, he's saying that now, but he's not actually going to do it. He's doing exactly what he said. And he won. Well, uh, you know, I, with all due respect, I disagree. I mean, I, I think I, I don't remember a moment where he said, I want to tax capital gains at the same rate as ordinary income. He did say, I'm not going to tax anybody who makes less for than people are, for income a over a million dollars. Let's add that. Yeah, well, but 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 you know what? He, he, he didn't say that during the campaign. All he would say was, I'm not going to tax anybody over 400,000. I mean, the idea that he campaigned on, I'm going to recommend in my first 100 days in office, $6 trillion in new spending. I, I don't remember a single time that he said that. Go back and look at the- his, I, I have. He has. He has. He, he did call for massive, massive uh, spending, social spending. And that was in the that was in the sort of $5 trillion range. So, you know, you may be right by-, by, by, by one thing right. is clear. Donald Trump, in many of those debates, suggested that if Biden did what Biden said he would do, that the economy would tank and it would be a disaster. So, I mean, I, I don't know that maybe Donald Trump knew something that that, that we didn't, but I, I have a feeling that there was maybe they didn't say 39.6 percent for capital gains above a million dollars for just a gross uh, income, but I do think there was there clearly was the impetus that they were going to let on to a series of tax increases. But this was not this was not he wisely did not make this a campaign about specifics. This what look I've got a, over here on my desk to my side I've got a, it's on top I can see it, uh, it uh, moveon.org opening line of their fundraising appeal. We, we we are pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I mean. But then they didn't read his platform. All I'm saying is he did say that he was going to do all these things when he was running. I'm shaking my head no. I'm going to send it to you. I want you to read it because it's um, because you're, you're, you're wrong about that. Anything you send me, I'll read. Okay. It's on the way. Yeah. Stay tuned as we pay some bills and you listen to some ads. If you're like uh, me and everybody else, I suspect, we're thinking about what can we do this summer after being cooped up for months and months and months and months. Man, I can hardly wait. We've got some great trips planned uh, going up north in Michigan. And whether it's for work or play, a lot of us are going to be on the move again this summer. So my advice to all of you is take your Raycons with you. Whether you're listening to our podcast on Raycons or just listening to your favorite music, a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears can make all the difference. You get crisp, powerful beats at half the price of other premium auto brands. Raycons look great and feel even better. They come in a range of cool colors and with customizable gel tips included for a comfortable in-ear fit, Axe. Yep, and Raycons are built to go wherever you go with quick and seamless Bluetooth pairing and a compact charging case. Hacks on Tap will never sound better than with a pair of Raycons, which is the way you should judge everything, I think. Raycons offering 15% off all their products for our listeners, and here's what you got to do to get it. Go to buyraycon.com hacks. 
There you'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order. And it's such a good deal, you want to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com slash hacks. That's buyraycon, R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash hacks. I just want to ask one thing. You know, we talked about the nativism before. Carl, the president you worked for, President Bush, just released a book. And the book is, I, I really, uh, I really, really recommend powerful. it to everyone. It's an art book. And it's uh, paintings that he painted of immigrants along with their stories. And the message is very, very clear. And it's about what immigrants add to our country. Uh, you know, because we've been together quite a bit at speaking and so on. I think it's to his everlasting credit that he fought for immigration reform. Um, I uh, uh, and and you know in 2013, after he left office, uh, an immigration reform bill passed the Senate. Um, and I uh, I asked John Boehner about this uh, on the Axe Files last week, uh, and because he never put the bill on the floor after it passed the Senate on a bipartisan basis, sixty. 768 senators. Yeah. So here's what he said. Oh, it would have passed, but about two thirds of my members would have been ready to kill me. And so I was trying to find a way to get there where we didn't set the whole institution on fire. The challenge I had was that I had a chairman of uh, the relevant committee who wouldn't act. I don't say he couldn't act, he wouldn't act. And frankly, every time I got close to some agreement to try to do something, President Obama would go off and light the fires, whether it was DACA or some other effort, that just really would light up some of the Republican base. And it was always, frankly, too hot to handle. It's a real regret, but it is what it is. That was a pretty uh, blunt commentary on the Democrat, on the Republican base and where it stands on, uh, on immigration. Uh, you talked about the border. I mean, that's still... Uh, that is a hot, hot issue that Trump exploited from the moment he came down the escalator. That is the, this, this is not George Bush's Republican party. Even then Bush had challenges within the party, but it's really shifted and it's quite nativist. Yeah. Well, it is a problem uh, because uh, as you know, you know how I feel about this. You I can do. see over my shoulder, the passports of the first, first rove to come to America, Olaf Julius Rove, who yeah. was a penniless, farm boy who spoke no English and came here at the age of 16 and his great grandson worked in the white house. Yeah. And you know, my dad was an immigrant. So oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And fantastic, yeah. A fantastic story about your dad. I mean, God, what a remarkable person to, at the age of nine to guide his family to, to, to safety and, and, uh, out of Russia. I mean, really remarkable, but Bush, president Bush feels very passionate about this issue. And, and you know what? I think, I think with the right leadership, I mean, I, I you know, I talk to, I, I, I get around a lot in the Republican circles and people will say, well, we need to control the border. I say, yeah, but what do you think about doing something about those dreamers, the people who came here as children through no fault of their own and know no country other than the United States? We need to do something about them. What do you think about the people who are here illegally? Should we throw them all out of our country? Oh, no, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. We got to find some way to resolve that. Yeah, the people are ahead of the politicians on this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you know what? The Republicans in the House 
What, what, what Bader's talking about is what's called the Hastert Rule. Somewhere yes. or another, we ended up having this thing called the Hastert Rule that yes. said that you can't bring up a measure on the floor of, this, of the House unless a majority of the Republicans support it. Now, the Democrats have, I don't know what they call it, but they got the same kind of rule. Uh, and we, run into, we ran into that difficulty in 2007 and eight. Uh, with Nancy Pelosi, because she would say, well, that, that may be a good thing, but we don't have a majority of Democrats who support it, so we can't bring it up. But this is why this is why a bipartisan thing on infrastructure would be good. If we need to break the logjam, we need to you know, break the ice, we need to, whatever the analogy is, we need to find some way to say we can make the system occasionally work. And, th- and that happens, that should happen on uh, immigration, should happen in 2007. We had members of the Democratic side who said they supported comprehensive immigration reform, who then turned around and without letting us know at the White House or letting McCain and Kennedy know, voted for the killer amendments that blew up the delicate coalition between farm state Republicans and uh, uh, Latinos and, and so forth. So, you know, it's I, I'm so thrilled, though, that Bush did this book. I, and I, I really do. I'm glad you liked it because it's so powerful and. I, I really, I was really blown away by it, and not, and, and actually, the art was the art yeah. was good too. It's really remarkable. Who, whoever knew? We probably shouldn't talk long about this because if we talk about it, we might blow it up ourselves. But you know, it does sound like people like Dick Durbin on the Democratic side, John Cornyn on the Republican side, are beginning to have some of these conversations. Do you yeah. think? And and I agree with you. I think it, nothing would be better than. If we could solve a big issue in a bipartisan way, that would really that that would be confounding, I think, to a lot of of political observers who have watched for many years that not happen. Do you think it's possible in today's politics if, if, if for us to be able to do that, or do we have that same challenge that that Boehner talked about? Do you think it could happen? Well, I think it can, but I, but I want to object to one word you used: big. I think that's one of our problems. Let's say, for example, let's take immigration. I think if if they said, look, let's take care of the dreamers issue and let's also do something with the ag guest workers issue and let's move a bill. Let, let, let's do it incrementally. So you wouldn't deal with the undocumented at that point. We got a better chance of dealing with the undocumented if we start to fix the system. But like so. So, so like, look, on, on, on the undocumented, I do think that ultimately where we're going to end up is where we had it in where Kennedy, McCain and Bush had it in 2007, which is if you're here illegally and you've been here for some time, you know, we're not you could have arrived yesterday. You got to here be here three years ago or five years ago. And you, and you kept your nose clean and we do a background to make certain you paid your taxes. and You learn haven't English, violated right. the law. And you learn English. You go to the back of the line. All the people who are here legally or trying to get here legally are going to stand in line in front of you. And at the end of this whole process, and we're going to monitor you, and you or your employer has got to pay for monitoring to make certain that you pay your taxes and keep your nose clean. I think the American people would say, you know what, I'm willing to do that, but I'm not, I don't want, I, I don't want, quote, amnesty, which means the forgiveness of an offense without, without penalty. And second of all, I don't want you to get special treatment. You got to go to the back of the line. No, it's interesting you say that because the only reason I meant big in the sense of dealing with um, those, as you said, that have been here for three or five years, is I do think there are some, and I don't, I don't, I don't know enough or or have a theory on this that if you deal with DACA and the guest worker and maybe even some of the border security, that 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 ends up being the end of the road for 
where you can get to bipartisan. Yeah, they think that's the train that drags the rest of it along. That's why I'd hold off on border security, because I think that's the thing that could, could that could give the Republicans cover. Start out by doing something that allows everybody to say we did something good. Dreamers and guest workers, but keep security to tie it to the big to the bigger issues that still remain and see if you can maneuver there. I think if you try and get too much done initially, we're going to run into the same problem we ran into in 2007. You pick out you pull, you know, it's a Jenga puzzle and you pull out one piece and everything falls down. I mean, I hope you're right. We we we, we ran a DACA bill in uh, 2010 and it got 55 votes in the Senate. So we'll see. We got to get to the mailbag, though. It's listener mailbag. Carl, I bet you didn't know David could sing quite that well, did you? You know, it's like Bush in his painting. It's a little something I do on the side. So. so corny. That is so corny. So corny. <laughs> Talk to Mike Murphy about that. So Carl Rove, Kelly says, can you talk about the census and reapportion the U.S. House of Representatives in terms of how, and reapportionment of the U.S. House of Representatives in terms of how it may affect the 2022 election? You, you, you have to be moderately happy about the way this is turning out. Oh, yeah, moderately. No, I mean, I actually thought it could be worse for Democrats. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Texas was originally anticipated to get three seats and uh, Florida, two, and New York was going to lose two seats. And we get two, New York loses one, Florida gets one. So, yeah, no, I'm moderately happy. The Republicans will hold more, uh, you know, levers in governing more districts and Democrats will hold the levers. And, Mm -hmm. and, uh, but, you know, like, yeah. In state legislatures and governorships. But even then, I mean, like, look, it is what it is sometimes. I mean, West Virginia, Republican state, and Republicans are going to lose one seat because West Virginia has three seats. They're going to two, and all three Congress members are are Republicans. So it's not as clear cut as just simply looking at the state. But I think at the end of the day, the Republicans out of redistricting pick up a net of three or four, could be five. But uh, they will also make themselves look uh, look in better places, look better in places where uh, there is no change in the number of members in a state. But there are differences that you have to the boundaries have to change because of the differences in population growth. So between the two, what do you think you net out there in terms of seats? I mean, where do you begin? Because you're you're talking about a a slim margin. What three, four seats right now uh, make the difference? Five. It's five with the Louisiana race, uh, mm-hmm. and it's gonna it'll be back to four, I think, after after Texas six. I, I hate to say because I've been through redistricting for a long time, and it, it, something always happens. But my gut tells me four or five seats from the reapportionment—that is to say, the shift mm-hmm. from blue states to red states—and then I think probably another five or six or seven uh, seats from the actual process itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some of that may be, you know, the, the question is, how many instances do you have where somebody says, well, my district is only 65 percent Republican and I need to be 70 percent, uh, you know, but I, it's going to pick up more than 10 total. Yeah. I, I mean, I think Democrats start in a hole here without without question. And the question is whether if the economy is booming, as many predict it will be uh, with between the comeback from the virus and the stimulus, does that overcome the, the disadvantages of the census and reapportionment? We'll see. Gibbs, you got one for me? Can I give you Can I give you a quick answer on that? Yeah. No, it's not. Because the economy is going to boom, both because of the natural recovery and the stimulus, 
but I think people are looking at it and saying, you know what, it's, it's, the economy is looking better because we're getting the disease behind us and we, we were always going to be strong economically. So they're, well, they're, they're, I mean, that's get a- some, the Demo- Democrats will get some boost, but most people think this has more to do with me in my community of my state than Maybe. it has to do with what Washington's doing. Maybe. I just know when people are feeling good, that's better for the incumbent than when they're not. So, yeah. yeah. All right, Axe, I'm going to ask you a question that was actually specifically addressed to you. Axe, I've right. always liked your idea of fighting Trump with political jujitsu. Now that he has largely receded from public view, do you think Biden's strategy of turning down the temperature, staying out of America's face, and actively avoiding culture war fights is a method of that that he's employing against the right as a whole. Are there lessons for other Democrats to learn here? Without question. You know, Carl said earlier that uh, in speaking about the uh, non-college voters who are in the Republican base, that the message to them is Democrats look down on them. Joe Biden does not. uh, And I think that's one great strength of his. Certainly his temperament um, is uh, is perfect for the post-Trump era. People were tired of of Trump and living on the jagged edge. And uh, Biden is not confrontational. He doesn't demonize his opponents. Uh, I think all of that is working for him. But for the lessons, the lessons for the party as a whole are respect everyone. Respect everyone. Joe Biden's strength is that he respects everyone. I agree with Karl Rove who wrote the other day uh, that the GOP should concentrate fire on Schumer, Pelosi, the squad. I mean, that part is that is neither here nor there, but all are far less popular than Mr. Biden. Biden is popular and people like him and, uh, and he treats people respectfully. And that is one of the reasons why he did somewhat better than, uh, than the last nominee uh, with, uh, with voters who he needed to win. Uh, and, uh, so, yeah, I think there are lessons to be learned from Biden, and I do think that he is the antithesis of Trump in many ways, and that jujitsu has worked for him. Now, Gibbs, Tanner asks, Robert, there's been a lot of inaccurate polls in the conversation lately, but in all the campaigns that you've been a part of, what was the most accurate poll you'll, you've ever seen, and why was it so accurate? Um, it's a great question, uh, and I think we have seen a lot of noise in polling recently. I, I, you've heard me say this before, and I think particularly with public polling, you get a lot of what you pay for. You get exactly what you pay for. And somebody approaches a TV station and says, we can poll your state or your congressional district for $4,000, and you can put it on TV and write a news article about it. You're going to get <laughs> you're gonna get a, a funky poll uh, or more than a few funky polls. Um I think there's nothing better in a political campaign than understanding, and it's far less the horse race. It is to understand the issue contours and the political environment that needs to take place or is taking place for you to make resource decisions. Uh, and I think back, and I'll tell a very quick story in 2012. You know, we had some very, very good polling throughout our, our presidential races, but in 2012, had a very good finger on the pulse of where the race was. Uh, and felt pretty confident about it. In fact, so confident that um, flying back from the last event in Iowa, uh, that the night before the election in 2012, we're sitting, Carl, you'll remember this space in Air Force One, and the, there's a little senior staff cabin right off the, the big sort of conference room. And uh, Axe Pluff and I are, are sitting in there, and uh, in walks then President Barack Obama, and, and he's chit-chatting, and uh, 
you know, you can tell he's got that nervousness of I've done all I can do, but I, I still feel like I need to be doing something because there's this important election going on. And we talked to him and, you know, we we told him we we felt very confident that he was going to be reelected president the next night. And I will not quote him verbatim because this is a family podcast, but he looked at the three of us and said, um, because we had knocked on his door at a certain night in New Hampshire earlier in 2008 to tell him that despite being up 10 the day before, he was going to lose the New Hampshire primary. And he said he did not want to see us knocking on his door tomorrow night to tell him that he had not won the race for president of the United States. He was a little more colorful in the way he. Well, that's what I just said. We we were that. we were we. I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna tell people the exact phrasing such that uh, uh, you know we could keep our positive rating on Apple Podcasts for uh, uh, for cleanliness. But yes, he was. Um, and, and interestingly enough, you know the the Romney people told their boss the same thing the night before that he was going to win, and uh, we were fortunate that the 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 challenges that 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 we'd seen and, and the numbers and, and the advice from the pollsters and whatnot going into the tabulations, we ended up uh, making some decisions we based good on the right numbers, numbers. man. Yeah. We, we knew where the race was from start to finish. And my bet is that Rove, uh, you've been in that position as well. It's, it's good to have a good steady uh, barometer when you're, when you're trying to figure out what, where you are. And uh, I don't pay much attention to what these public polls say. If I'm in a race, uh, you know, I have a team I trust. We check, we check against each other, and so on, and we know where we're going. Yeah, if you don't trust them, you should be paying them. Exactly, and you're paying them a lot, right? <laughs> you're paying them a lot. Speaking of paying a lot, I know what your uh, Rove's hourly rates are, so we got to roll here. But Carl Rove, it's great to be with you as always. Thanks for your insight, Carl. You bet. Thanks. <laughs> great to see you two bugs. <laughs> See you later. See you, Robert. Thank you.